So yeah, I'm excited to share the word today. Uh, like Alyssa said, my name is Evan. Um, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians, the, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. So I'm going to go ahead and read that here. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual morality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So Jesus, we pray this morning that you would have your way. Uh, we open ourselves up to you and we just say, we need, to, we need you. We need to be changed. We need you to do something in us that we can't do, the world can't do, only your spirit can do. So I just pray that today you would fill this room that uh, you would help us to follow you and to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the book of 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. And um, Paul is an interesting guy. He was a religious fanatic who actually killed people that followed Jesus. That's like what he did. But he was traveling and he was on the road to a place called Damascus. And Jesus actually appeared to Paul and from that very moment on, he committed the rest of his life to following Jesus, planting churches, and teaching others about how to follow Jesus. Now, Paul wrote a large part of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament was books to other churches. He wrote two books to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And it's important to understand a little something about the church in Corinth, and that is that the church in Corinth had a lot of issues, okay? They, like us, lived in a culture that did not reflect the ways of God. Uh, in the culture there, sin was rampant, and actually they celebrated sin in a lot of ways, and behaviors and beliefs that were completely against God's ways were the norm. So at the end of the section we just read are keys for what we're going to talk about today. The first is this, we are all tempted, every single one of us. Verse 13 reminds us we must be aware of temptations. Temptations lurk around every corner. Now, the cool thing is that we can have hope that our enemy, who wants nothing more than for you and I to give into temptation, isn't creative. So Paul says, there's no temptation that has overtaken us except what's common to mankind. That's one of the reasons that living in community is so important, to have people in our lives that actually really know what's going on. It's nearly guaranteed that whatever I'm being tempted with is something others can relate to. 
My temptations, your temptations, they're not unique. So we know we're tempted. We are all tempted by the same things. And to quote Paul, God is faithful. He will not let you or I be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, he always provides a way out so we can endure it. So we have great hope that when we face temptations of all kinds, we are always given a way out. So as we dive into what I believe Jesus has for us today, those of us here that profess Jesus as Lord, we get to stand in the place of hope. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provide us hope. We can turn to him when we are weak, when we are tempted, and he always provides a way out. Now, maybe you're here today, and Jesus isn't yet Lord of your life. Maybe you haven't yet committed yourself to him. You haven't yet said, Jesus, I want you to be in charge of my life. Maybe you haven't yet recognized that you, like the rest of us, are a sinner in need of saving. We are all sinners in need of saving. I hope that you today will decide to recognize him as Lord. Not as an add-on, not as an addition to life, but as Lord. To surrender. For all of us, surrender is the place where we find ultimate freedom. So Paul tells us in verses 1 through 11 that we can learn from the story of the Israelites. We can learn from their history. Now obviously we don't have time this morning to dive into the full history of the Israelites, That would be very boring, first of all, and very long. But it's important, though, to understand some of the context for what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 10. So verses 1 through 5, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So here's what we got to understand. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. So for context, the United States of America has been a formal country for about 250 years. So that means that at the time of their freedom from slavery, five or six generations of Israelites had been slaves. So if you were an Israelite during the time Paul is talking about, that means that you were a slave, your parents were slaves, your grandparents were slaves, your great-grandparents were slaves, and your great-great-grandparents were slaves. And maybe even your great-great-great-grandparents. So, needless to say, they were more used to being slaves than being free. Now, the Israelites had the promise of being God's chosen people. But as you can imagine, I mean, it would be a little bit hard to believe that after being a slave for 400 years. I mean, come on, you and I, we forget that we're God's beloved after like a week. I mean, if the barista screws up our order or the Wi-Fi at home doesn't work, right, we think the world's ending. They were slaves for 400 years. They built the pyramids by hand using mud and straw. But God promised them freedom, and freedom came. 
Through a set of miraculous events, they were set free from being slaves, and God led them away from those that imprisoned them. In the middle of the night, word passed house to house, it's time. They were free. So they fled, and God himself defended them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They walked through the desert, and now they come to the Red Sea. So by that time, the Egyptians had realized, you know, hey, all our free labor is walking away. And they decided they didn't want to do it themselves, so they pursued them. So now the Israelites have the sea in front and the Egyptian army behind them. But God made a way. He split the sea, literally, and he made a path of dry land through the water so they could escape. And the Egyptians began to pursue them down that same path, and the water crashed back, stopping their pursuit. At the end of Exodus 14 and into 15, we see the Israelites feared the Lord and put their trust in him. They feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. And then they worshiped. It's a pretty amazing picture, right? Even if that was the end of the story, the end of the miracles, pretty wild. But that's not the end. So they walk for three days in the desert with no water. I mean, that's literally the edge of human survivability. They are near death, and they come to water, but they get to the water, and the water is not drinkable. I mean, can you imagine driving across the desert this summer? You're on a road trip. Your car breaks down, middle of the summer heat. I mean, you and I, we would be downright cranky if we hadn't had a drink of water for eight hours. Super cranky. Three days in the desert, and then they get to the water, and the water isn't even drinkable. But Moses gets on his face and he cries out to God and God says, take that piece of wood and throw it into the water. He does it and the water becomes drinkable. So they all drink. A bit further into the journey, they get hungry. All the food they'd packed is run out and they have nothing left to eat. So God sends flocks of quail, which like picture like a small chicken, right? And he rains manna down. So now they have they have chicken and they have bread, which to me sounds like a Chick-fil-A sandwich, right? I mean, so fundamentally, God's like, hey, here's a sandwich, here's some fries, and the people are stunned. I would be too. They have food to eat, water to drink. This is what Paul's talking about, 1 Corinthians 10. The Israelites all experienced these incredible miracles, freedom from slavery, passing through the Red Sea on dry land. Their enemies defeated. Miracle provision of water. Miracle provision of food. They literally had a front row seat to the power and miracle working nature of God. Yet as we read, God was not pleased with most of them. They didn't get to finish the journey, but their sins separated them from God's highest and God's best. You see, you and I are separated from God by sin also. However, The incredible blessing that we have is that we have available to us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He invites you and invites me to make him Lord over our life. To hand him our sin and to follow him as opposed to being in charge all the time. Because he makes a way through sin. In verses 6 through 10, Paul says, Now these things occurred as examples to to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. 
We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Do not be idolaters. Or, to put it another way, do not put other things ahead of God. He is first. The story Paul is referring to here occurs in Exodus 32. Moses, who's leading the Israelites, goes up on a mountain to meet with God. During that meeting, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments to share with the people. But we read in chapter 32, verse 1, the Israelites got impatient because it was taking too long for Moses to come down from the mountain. Things weren't happening in the timing they desired. Can you relate? I can relate. Impatient. What's taking so long? So they took matters into their own hands. They moved from a place of trust to a place of impulsiveness. They moved from a place of seeking God to doing what they wanted, what they thought was best. So they end up giving Aaron, who is second in command to Moses, all their jewelry, which he melts down to build a calf, and they worship it. I mean, that sounds crazy to me, and hopefully sounds crazy to you as well. I mean, why would you trade the living God that split the sea, brought fresh water, food to eat, miracle after miracle for something obviously so fake? I mean, it's not like an outsider rolled into camp with a cart and a calf on it and said, hey, I've got a great story. If you guys worship this, you'll be rich and you'll live happy ever after. That's not what happened. They knew where the calf came from. It was their own jewelry. They took off their rings and earrings and handed them to Moses. He melted them down and made a calf. They watched it happen. See, we can miss the significance this story has for us because it's unlikely that you're going to go home today or I'm going to go home today, melt my jewelry, and make a little calf to worship. If you're planning on it, I would encourage you not to do that. Um, But what we do have to understand is that they were going back to what they were familiar with. They'd lived in Egypt for 430 years. The Egyptians worshipped idols, so when they were tested, they simply went back to what was familiar and what was comfortable. When things weren't going like they wanted within their desired timing and by the methods that they thought would be a, a good fit, They simply turned to a poor substitute for the real thing. They developed a case of spiritual amnesia. They forgot all the miracles that they had witnessed, and they returned to their old ways of thinking. So for me, if things aren't going in the timing or in the way I desire, I return to idols of fear and worry. That's what I do. How is this going to work out? Maybe I'll just check my email again and the client will have emailed back. What idols do you return to? What has he rescued you from? Have you turned back to those things, even a little bit? See, in our sin, we so often tend to return to the very things from which we were rescued. Let's skip to 1 Corinthians 10.10. It says, And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. What in the world? So grumbling is now a death sentence? 
I mean, we'd, there'd be no one here. would be like, welcome to Heart Church. There's like two people. Because we'd all be dead. That's crazy. I mean, this seems like an example of the punishment is a little bit excessive for the crime, right? But it's important to understand what the grumbling was. You see, the Israelites had a pattern over years of opposition to the way God wanted to do things. They got tired of how God wanted to lead them. They got tired of Moses. They got tired of walking, tired of manna, tired of quail. See, in in fact, numerous times they simply said, hey, Moses, will you just take us back to Egypt? Can you imagine? Because we just had such a great time being slaves. Will you just take us back? They said it would have been better to simply die in Egypt than wander around in the desert having a miraculous provision of food, God meeting face to face with Moses. See, the problem with grumbling is that the end result is outright rebellion. Rebellion is you and I telling God through our thoughts and actions that my ways are better than his ways. That's why grumbling is so dangerous. Grumbling is the seed that grows into outright rebellion. And outright rebellion is idolatry. Now, grumbling is tricky though, right? It can be subtle. So, am I grumbling or just kind of expressing my opinion? So, if I'm at a restaurant and I've been waiting 45 minutes for my food, am I grumbling if I say something? If I'm sharing with a close friend about challenges in my marriage, is that grumbling? How do we discern grumbling from not grumbling? As I mentioned, the Israelites had a pattern of grumbling over years. It wasn't like they had one moment where they complained. There was deep-seated discontentment with the way things were and insistence that things would be different and better if they called the shots. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Do you and I have patterns of complaining? Maybe it's just nothing's ever good enough. How would those closest to you and I, most familiar with us, describe us? Would they describe me and describe you as someone that complains and grumbles as a pattern? Now, I think the answer regarding what grumbling is can be found by asking a different question and instead not focusing on grumbling, but focusing on thanksgiving. What if instead of complaining about the menu for the day once again being manna and quail, the Israelites verbalized their thankfulness at the hilarious provision of God while also, you know, sharing recipes on how to prepare manna and quail and sharing the salt and the pepper. And I mean, you'd need to be creative, right? It'd get a little, you know, monotonous. But what if they were thankful? What if instead of complaining about wandering around in the desert, which they did, they spoke their thankfulness that at least they were walking around as free people and they were no longer living under the bondage of slavery. So what does thanksgiving, which is the opposite of grumbling, look and sound like? There's a woman named Ann Voskamp, and she wrote a book called 1,000 Gifts. The premise of the book is that you and I can find joy in the gifts of everyday life, the simple and mundane stuff. I read the book uh, about a decade ago, and it was actually really extraordinary for me. Now, to be honest, though, when I started, I kind of did it begrudgingly, 
And at first, there were parts of it I felt like were a tiny bit ridiculous. So she would say something like, you should be thankful when the sun comes through the window and glistens on the spider web in the corner. And I'm thinking, look, lady, I'm looking for the vacuum. I'm going to get rid of the spider web and the spider. Or she's like, you should be thankful for the laughing of your children. And we were in the phase of life, and I'm like, the kids should have been asleep a half hour ago. I am not laughing. And I got irritated. But what happened is my irritation was actually fruit of the depth of my grumbling. My grumpiness exposed the depth to which I lived day-to-day life complaining about how I didn't like the way things were. So reading that book, for me, was the beginning of a journey learning about and walking in the power of thankfulness. Thankfulness as worship. Now, I still struggle all the time, but I attempt to live in thankfulness because I know it's the opposite of grumbling. Now, some of the things that fill me with the greatest joy are the simplest. Near my house, there's a park, and I love to go running there. And there's a spot that's the farthest from the parking lot and the roads. And I often will go on my trail runs there and I'll stop. And there's this one place that's on top of a ridge and there's a creek that runs through the bottom. And I'll just stand there. And there's these huge trees, fir trees and cedar trees that are hundreds of years old. And now I just stand there and I marvel that the creator of all that would take the time to know my name. Would send his son to live, die, rise from the dead, so I could have relationship. So it's not fancy, but if I spend a few minutes just being thankful, it's amazing how my heart gets set right. It's like a reset. My heart gets set right. Ten minutes of gratitude over the small things, it's like it flips a switch. The trivial worries of my day just go away. So do the super real worries of like, How can I be a good husband and a present dad? How do I provide for my family? All of that comes into focus as well because I'm thankful. I stop complaining. I stop grumbling. I stop trying to be in charge. So how do you and I fight the temptation to grumble and walk in idolatry? Like what do we do about it? How do we do this? I think we can learn a ton from the Israelites and actually, if we rewind, how they started their journey. So right after they crossed the Red Sea and they're overwhelmed and struck by the faithfulness, power, and love of God, they worship. Worship is our expression of thanks. It is our expression of acknowledging the lordship of Christ. He is Lord, we are not. In Exodus 15, we actually have recorded the song of worship. What's interesting to me about this song is that it declares who God is and what he has done. Who God is, what he has done. Who God is, what he has done. That's the whole song. Worship is the key to avoiding the pitfalls of grumbling and idolatry. So we're going to spend the next few minutes worshiping in song together, like we do every week. This is one of the ways that we as individuals and a community can begin to walk in thankfulness. We are going to worship him for who he is and what he has done. Expressing thankfulness for the little things. Maybe you just need to thank the Lord for your spouse. 
Thank you that, Lord, I have an able body and a sound mind so I can go to school. I can work. I can play with my kids. Thank you that I have the blessing of choice. I can choose where I want to live. I can choose what I want to do for work. I can choose who I want to marry. Maybe you need to thank him for the busyness of life. Thank you that life is full and crazy. Maybe you need to thank him for the fact that life is slow and you get the luxury of quiet afternoons. Let's be people that worship through thanksgiving. We do not want to be idolaters or grumblers. We do not want to follow what the Israelites did. Let's do it different. I think the simplest and quickest way to walk in the opposite spirit is to worship by being those who are thankful. So Caleb and Emma, go ahead and come on up. As we worship this morning, I want to encourage you in a couple things. Maybe as I'm talking, you can think of ways that you have idolatry or grumbling. The crazy cool thing about following Jesus is that you can just say to him very simply, in your own words, you can say, Jesus, forgive me for the idolatry of complaining. Forgive me for never being satisfied. Whatever it is for you, you can literally just hand it to him and you can just say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. That's it. It's crazy. It makes no sense. That's what's wild about the life spent pursuing Jesus. You can give it to him right now. Your day can change right now. Your life can change right now. Maybe you're here, though, and like I said, and Jesus isn't Lord in your life yet. You're just here. You just come in, and he's not, you're not really surrendered to him. The cool thing, that can change, too. You can simply say, I don't want to be Lord in my life anymore. I want you to be Lord. And I hand you my grumbling. I hand you my idolatry. And he can change it. It's crazy. So Jesus, we thank you that grace is crazy. What you did is crazy. It makes no sense. And so we as a community just want to fall headlong into the gift of grace and say we surrender We want to hand you our idolatry. We want you to be first. We want to hand you our grumbling and complaining and patterns of things never being good enough and say, you are enough, Jesus. So I pray that as we worship here this morning that you would meet with us individually as a community, that you would meet with us, that you would come and that you would change us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do what only you can do, which is change the human heart. Change my heart. Change our hearts, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up.